Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Elvis Mitchell is an august radio host and film critic, a class act, a brilliant public intellectual, but he has an important role in my life, and that is introducing me to the movie Pootie Tang. I think I'm the only English-speaking critic in North America to be quoted on the Pootie Tang home video box. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I'm excited about talking to this guy. It's Bullseye. This week, Elvis Mitchell on how he made a career writing and talking about movies and why he was arrested on the Canadian border with $12,000 in cash in a cigar box. Kevin Barnes from Of Montreal goes small in the studio. I don't really let the outside world in when I'm writing and recording. And then big and bold on stage. In New York, that was the show that had the horse when I came out on the horse. Plus, the brothers McElroy solve listeners' most pressing pop culture problems. That plus much more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend things that are worth your time. This week, we're talking comic books with Alex Albin from MTV Geek and Brian Heater from the Daily Crosshatch. Hey, Alex and Brian, how you guys doing? Good. I'm also doing good as well. <laughs> you seem unconvinced, Brian. I was waiting for Alex to weigh in first. Um, well, let's start with Alex. Speaking of Alex weighing in first, Alex, you recommend this new comic called is this pronounced mind management? Yeah, I think that it's pronounced mind management. I haven't checked with Matt Kent, who writes and draws it, but it's either that or mind management, which is probably not quite as catchy. It's spelled MGMT like the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has nothing to do with the band, though, and everything to do with psychic <laughs> warfare from CIA operatives. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool new book. Matt Kent has done a couple of indie books before. He did a great book called Three Story, Tales of the Giant Man, which was about a guy who was 30 feet tall, but dealt with it in a, a re, as realistic a way as possible. But here, this is his first ongoing series through Dark Horse. And it starts off with two people fighting on a rooftop using their minds, cuts to an airline flight where everybody has totally lost their memories except for one seven-year-old boy and a man who disappears. And then we get into the main action following this reporter named Maru who is trying to track down what went on with this flight and starts to get a lead. So there's a little bit of a detective story. There's a little bit of spy story, some sci-fi in that. Uh, and it's, you almost have no idea what's going on for the majority of the comic, but it's completely involving the entire way. Brian, let's talk about your pick, Nicholas Mahler's Angel Man, um, which is a sort of a, a satirical take on the world of comics in comics form. Um, there's certainly, as you know, as the world of comic book movies comes to dominate the box office and so on, there's certainly plenty to satirize. Tell me a bit about this title. Yeah, uh, if I was describing to Alex, I would say it's like uh, S- Sergio Aragones meets David Foster Wallace. I don't know. It's also a, a, a comic book that I think kind of uh, 
uh, pokes fun at a uh, at a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of mainstream books as well. Um, it's about uh, a little red winged uh, superhero, and his his powers are uh, good listening and empathy. <laughs> uh, it's drawn in a very unsuperhero way. It's drawn in uh, in Nicholas Mahler's. Uh, kind of uh, his standard style. It's it's very uh, it's very minimalist. You know, you can't really quite tell what's going on in a lot of it. Um, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Brian Heater is a freelance comics journalist and the editor of the Daily Crosshatch online at thedailycrosshatch.com. He recommends Angel Man by Nicholas Mahler. Alex Zalbin is a writer for MTV Geek and the co-host of the live New York City talk show Comic Book Club which you can find online at comicbookclublive.com. He recommends the series Mind Management, that's MGMT, by Matt Kent. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Elvis Mitchell has spent the last 30 years or so chewing up culture and spitting out insight. He was a film critic for the New York Times and a culture critic for NPR, among many other gigs. And for the last 15 years or so, he's brought his insights on film and culture to the interviewer's chair as the host of one of my favorite public radio shows, KCRW's The Treatment. It's rare for an episode of that show to pass by without one of Elvis's guests gasping audibly at a bit of casually dropped perspicacity on Elvis's part. His latest job is as the curator of film programs at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, and it's great to have you on the show, Elvis. Thank you so much for joining me here. I do have rights in the box, right? You didn't Mirandize me before we sat down. <laughs> Elvis is disappointed because we recently stopped recording this show in I was my so second for, bedroom. First of all, everybody in Detroit, I emailed I was coming to do the former Sound of Young America. Because I told you when we met, I loved the show for that reason alone. <laughs> well, th- I, I am a, such a huge fan of your show too, Elvis, as I've, as I've told you off microphone. So it really is great to have you on the show. Um, but I, w- I wanted to ask you about uh, growing up in Detroit. Maybe you could sort of describe the context in which you grew up. Um, I grew up in what I think they now demographically call an urban existence. Uh-huh. Um, we were pretty poor. Like I said, my dad worked two full-time jobs. He worked at a dairy plant during the day and a laundry at night. Did you always have the idea, like when you were a teenager, that you were going to go into... <laughs> Culture. No, for real. Culture as the thing that was going to be like not just something that you were into. Like did you – but was actually going to be at the center of your professional life? Like you were going to make a living from this? Let me put it to you this way. No. It never, ever occurred to me. When I was finishing school, um, I started school on a theater scholarship and couldn't stand being around college actors, so I quit after two years. Then I went back and had to work at a public radio station where I eventually became a film critic, and um, I was a recording engineer, and the guy I recorded, who I replaced, by the way, is Armand White, who is still a friend of mine, and despite what people say, he's not crazy. Um, and and I was lucky that Pauline Kale came to Detroit for a book tour for When the Lights Go Down when I was in college. And I went to meet her. And it was in the days of, you may remember this phrase, live radio. And there was a small audience there. And so she had done a, a local TV appearance, and I heard her say she's going to go to this radio station, and she's going to be on at noon. 
as so happened, I knew the producer of the show, so I thought I'd go sit in the lobby. Maybe I could get her to sign a copy of Reeling. So I sat there with my sweaty copy, sweaty paperback copy of Reeling in my hands and um, looked up, and she was already there. So I was, like, walking to this chair. And so I sat down next to her, and we started to talk and talked about 15 minutes or so. And they came to take her away to be interviewed, and she grabs me by the arm. I said, no, no, I'm not on this show with you. No, no, just sit with me while I do the interview. So I'm sitting there next to Pauline Kael for an hour, and just her rhetorical powers and her clear, incredibly straightforward and profoundly witty and, and insightful extemporaneous speech, it was like really sitting in the eye of a hurricane. And this poor, bewildered host, and the people kind of clap. It's like a five-second delay from a bad phone call. Or, oh, yeah, that was, that was funny. And I thought, I can go back and get my English degree and go to law school, which is what I thought I was going to do. And she said, well, what are you doing tonight? After we'd walked around trying to find a copy of the book so she could sign her new book for me, and it wasn't available, I said, I'm just going to watch the Oscars with my girlfriend. She said, why don't you come to my hotel, bring some friends over and watch the Oscars? And I thought, I can't do this because my girlfriend will say something that will humiliate me, (laughs) which is why we're not speaking now. I scant 30 years later, 30 years this year, I guess. And so um, I said, well, if I could come to your hotel to interview you you tomorrow. She said, sure. So I dressed up in what was my probably favorite post-punk outfit of the era, navy blue suit, navy blue knit tie, navy blue shirt. And I showed up at the hotel, and she opened the door. Oh, honey, who died? <laughs> and that just sort of got us off in a roll. And um, we talked for a couple of hours. And she said, listen, if you're ever looking to get into grad school or you think you want to do this for a living, I think you could do this. And it was weird because I never got any encouragement in Detroit. I'd applied for a couple jobs there at local papers to write about movies. Nobody would hire me. And to have Pauline Kale say this to me and – she gave me her phone number, and the first year I knew her, I was so terrified that I only wrote to her. So I have vouchsafed in my possession a collection of about 30 or so letters from Pauline Kale. I mean, it's it feels like a big deal to me when you when you grow up in circumstances where— Straightened circumstances? Is that the word you're looking for? <laughs> No, but I mean when when you uh when it's when you grow up in circumstances where you, where even it's like a big deal for you to go to college or you know whatever it's one thing to grow up in those circumstances say I'm going to go to college I'm going to go to law school I'm going to go to college I'm going to go to medical school um you know something where you can pursue a path that seems very certain um and it's very different to pursue something that is as as a, a a course that is as tough to chart as you know arts critic. Guy. I think the, the word you're looking for is stupid and flight <laughs> of fancy, um, because I I thought well I I'll get a degree in law because what else do you do with an English degree? I was with my English literature degree qualified to drive a cab any place in the continental United States, and um, when I told my parents I thought I wanted to do this. Uh, when I first, in fact, got this job as a TV critic in suburban Detroit before I, I moved to L.A. for a little bit, um, my father would just say to me, so you're a grown man who wants to go to the movies for a living. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, it doesn't sound like grown work to do. It doesn't sound – nobody I knew growing up ever took a job doing what he wanted to do. 
it was as alien a concept to me as you could ever speak aloud. And if you told me I would be doing that 10 years after I graduated from college, I would still be laughing. I mean, I was just happy that Pauline Kale had acknowledged my existence and thought I had some talent for this. And um, the, the last 30 years of my life has just been a series of stumbling into jobs that most people thought I wasn't qualified to have. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Elvis Mitchell, is the host of a public radio show about film and pop culture called The Treatment. What was the thing, what was the job that you got that made you feel like this was a a tightrope that you can and should actually walk out on far enough that you couldn't necessarily go back? I thought I could go back to it, to be honest with you, Uh, because I got in, but I got this job at the Oakland Press, and I was a one-person TV staff, so I wrote three times a week edited copy, put together that TV book that used to come with your newspaper. Remember back in the 20th century? I did all that by myself, having a great time. Detroit was a great music city at that point. There were punk clubs everywhere. Um, I was one of seven people who saw the police play at a little club in uh, De- in Detroit proper in, like, 1979. There were, I helped them load equipment onto the van because it was my friend's club. There was nobody in the room. So it was just a really exciting time to be in college and then eventually like work and be too stupid to think you had to go and sleep at any point. So I did that and just had fun and figured I can always go to law school because I got in. And then um, at one point I applied for a job at the Detroit Free Press, which I didn't get. And Pauline said, you're wasting your time there. You're never going to work. If you really want to make a bet and see if it pays off, you got to come to New York or go to Los Angeles. So I thought I can do that for a couple of years. I quit my job. I, it still terrifies me to say this. I quit my job in Detroit, moved to L.A., and got a job writing um, for when there used to be a two-alternative newspaper town, the L.A. Reader, and wrote some pieces. And, um, gosh, um, wrote a piece about the first, like the second season of Cheers, and I later interviewed James Burroughs, who directed most of those episodes. And he said, are you the guy who wrote that piece for the L.A. Reader about Cheers? Because you got the show in a way that nobody else did. And it's just these things you, you realize the more you do. And I always tell young people, just write anywhere because you never know who's going to see what you're writing. And it can pay off in ways you don't expect. I wrote about TV for the L.A. Reader. Um, Matt Groening was— What did you write about Cheers? I'm, ke- I'm interested in hearing— um, I've been watching a lot of Cheers lately, I should you? say. Yeah. I thought the first couple of seasons were really kind of fascinating to watch because of that tension that I thought that um, Ted Danson had an, about basically a ballet dancer's grace, like, which you would append to a first baseman rather than being like a burly catcher or, or – or, 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 no, rather he was a pitcher. And, and having, there's something just so, sort of balletic about the way he moved. And I later learned from from Burroughs, okay, he never knew anything about baseball. He and talked about Ted Danson, I guess, at Body Heat at that point, and sort of this how there's this kind of sad undertone of Lothari, his Lotharism, sort of made you wonder what he was actually trying to prove to himself. Because um, the first couple of seasons of Cheers, in addition to being really funny, had this kind of melancholy that later disappeared in the show. Um, because for me, that essential question was, these people are at a bar every day of their lives. It was, to me, like a comedic version of The Iceman Cometh. I just 
thought that there weren't many people writing about television in a way that I thought analyzed what was going on. It was kind of an exciting time for TV. It was when Moonlighting was starting, when Miami Vice was getting going. People think TV is great now. Those were the days of TV where it first started to feel like movies, and Miami Vice was shot to look like a movie. And um, I started getting attention for that and ended up going to Interview Magazine, which got me hired as the uh, cultural critic for Weekend Edition when it started. Um, because there's a profile of me in Interview Magazine. There was never any plan to anything I've ever done in my life, including finding a parking place in your building when I got here. (laughs) Um, I think it's really interesting that you started writing about TV in that period of time, because that really was a, a time when the ambition of television was changing significantly. I mean, there had been you know, super important uh, sitcoms in the 70s, and there had been big things, a few but big things. But those shows were anomalous rather than, than, the, um, than basically the way things were. And these shows, again, you know, I'd seen Bruce Willis on stage. I was talking to somebody about this this morning in Fool for Love um, because I wanted to go see this actor, Will Patton, this legendary Chicago actor, do this Sam Shepard play. And he wasn't there. So the understudy, his understudy was Bruce Willis, who went on that night, and I thought this guy was really an astonishing performer to watch. And a couple of nights later, I went to a bar in Hell's Kitchen. He was attending bar, and like, to, you know, so I like chatted with him a little bit. And I, I think he has no memory of this. Why would he? But I just started to see that there were all kinds of talent that had been, I think, for the most part, excluded from TV. It wasn't just cranking out stuff, just a slap on the schedule. For some reason, TV started to become really competitive in those days. Uh, and and things just change. It was the beginning of seeing, again, I remember seeing Denzel Washington in a, this movie that's really awful that he's terrific in called Carbon Copy, in which he plays George Siegel's illegitimate son. And that night, seeing him on stage in a soldier's play. And then um, suddenly he turns up on St. Elsewhere. You start seeing all these actors on television who are going to really eventually change the way movies were, were done. And for the first time, people were moving back and forth between film and television. So Michael J. Fox was doing Family Ties and also doing um, Back to the Future. It's just this weird kind of accretion of debris that can join a snowball that rolls downhill so it becomes like a really messy avalanche after all. You're talking about watching uh, enough television to be a professional television critic and writer, um, which at the time was a little more complicated. You know, you're getting probably uh, video cassettes of shows from networks or something. <laughs> I still have one inch cassettes of shows in my house. So, so you you're you're doing that um, you're doing that amount of television watching. And you're also describing to me, I mean, I I know what a film enthusiast you are, and I can't imagine that you ever you were ever not that. And then you're describing to me, like, what were, how, what was your life like? Like, there, you're, this list of things is starting to overwhelm me just hearing about it. <laughs> what about the volume? I mean, how, what kind of volume are we talking about in terms of media consumption, both then and now? I'm, I'm keen on, like, numbers. Well, it helps to be single. Uh, I mean, and, and it probably helps you to be single also. Wow, subtle. <laughs> but I just, I don't sleep a lot, maybe most like three or four hours a night, and I always feel like I'm missing something. Um, we moved to a house when I was a kid 
that had an, uh, a, tr- a steamer trunk full of New Yorkers. This would be from like the late 60s. And it was in the days when the, the upfront section wasn't signed. So I thought one person saw all those movies, went to all those plays, saw all those gallery shows, and I said, one day I'm going to be that guy. I was like a seven-year-old moron, so I didn't realize that lots of people did these things. But that sounded like the most exciting life you could possibly have. And there's also that kind of thing of watching, you know, all the, move, the, the movies that used to run constantly on, on television that are now on TCM um, that made New York seem like uh, the magnet of excitement and where everybody ended up. I just thought I'd be there one day and do all of those things. And so this is probably some lame attempt to pursue that still. After a break, film critic Elvis Mitchell and I talk about our mutual love for a great classic of the cinema, Pootie Tang. I think I'm the only English-speaking critic in North America to be quoted on the Pootie Tang home video box. (laughs) (laughs) Sabotai, Elvis. Pootie's the pwn Tony. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio international this episode of bullseye is supported by listeners like you and by comedy bang bang friday nights on ifc is a delightful and hilarious talk show like program uh, with our friend scott ackerman this week's guest michael sarah another friend of the program past guest on this show and reggie watts the band leader one man band leader worrying about product placement taking over the show. Friday nights on IFC at 10. And if you want more information about that, why not Bing it with Microsoft's Bing. It is a search engine that doesn't just search the web, but also searches your social network. So you can get um, information uh, not just from, you know, the average worldwide web user, but also from experts and from people that you know. You can try it online at Bing.com. Bing is for doing. Hey gang, it's me, Jesse. We just finished Max FunCon on the West Coast. It was an amazing good time. It changed innumerable lives. You could probably put a number on it because there's only a couple hundred people there. Anyway, moral of the story is Max FunCon East is coming up in October in the Poconos, which we are putting on with some help from our friends at WNYC in New York. It is going to be a blast. We are already three quarters sold out, so don't wait for that lineup announcement to buy your tickets because there might not be any tickets left. If you want more information, you want to get some tickets now, go to MaxFunCon.com. MaxFunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Elvis Mitchell. He's a noted film critic and the host of the public radio show, The Treatment. He's also the producer of a documentary series called The Blacklist. The films are portraits of notable African-Americans. I'll tell you that one of the first things that uh, led me to be aware of you uh, was when I was in college when uh, uh, Louis C.K.'s movie Pootie Tang came out. Um, And I remember reading your review review of Pootie Tang, which is a kind of fever dream uh, nonsense version of a black exploitation movie. It's not like a parody of a black exploitation movie at all. It's like a what if you took that and brought in a huge amount of the absurdist aesthetic of like the early years of the Conan O'Brien show. Um, And I I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh, wow, this guy seems to actually understand what this movie 
is. It was a very poorly reviewed movie overall. I think I'm the only. You wrote a pretty positive review of it. I think I'm the only English speaking critic in North America to be quoted on the Pudu Tang home video box. (laughs) It is my happiest achievement as being at the New York Times, but it wasn't a movie I, I tried to make excuses for. I just said it made me laugh. And it's weird. I just found. As a packing up stuff to bring from New York to LA, I'm keeping uh, um, um, places in both cities for the time being. I found this uh, old book on editing um, by Walter Murch called In the Blink of an Eye, which I was reading on a plane. And I ended up sitting next to Louis, and there was something that was kind of cut for space that I asked him about. This absurdist thing we, we, you, you mentioned, and it felt very much like Clockwork Orange to me, which, you, yeah. So we ended up, we talked the whole flight about that, and I ended up meeting Lance later. Uh, he said, you know, you've now got a whole bunch of kids chasing me because there are a bunch of guys, I guess, of your age who like <laughs> saw that review. And it, it further emboldened them that they could say, well, it's in the New York Times. It must be serious. But I just thought the movie was incredibly smart about being silly, which is no small thing to do because it's that what I'm just talking about in terms of what I try to do, that there's no condescension to, to the material. Capuchin. Yay, Pootie Tang. Dirty D. You a baddie, daddy, lamentat, tebit, shy. There's something else, too, about Pootie Tang specifically um, that I think your ex- that I think is probably part of why you specifically were the person that um, that was the only one, the only English language North American reviewer quoted on that <laughs> DVD box, and. That is. Thanks for reciting that back to that me. In the way I said it, not only not only was the film super silly, um, but it was you know Louis is a white guy, but it was a black movie, and it's rare for it's rare for the opportunity to exist for those two things to happen on in the same film. Um, you know. A, uh, there, uh, this was a time when, st- and we're still in a time when, if you get to make an African American movie with an almost all black cast, where it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, wh- where that is part of what it is, it has to be either like serious, representing the race type of thing, or it's a very broad, uh, or it's a very broad populist thing. And there's not a lot in between. And the specificity of the silliness in Pootie Tang, combined with the fact that it was a distinctly black film, is a really unusual thing in a movie. Well, the idea of making a surrealist black ghetto comedy uh, at a studio or even independently now, I cannot imagine how you'd be able to pull this thing together. Who would run it? Who would go see it? It happened that it was when the beginning of Chris Rock's having reinvented himself. And because of that aspect of the show was so popular, he got to make this very low-budget movie. Um, but it, it's smart in so many ways and in ways I think that speak specifically to black culture. I mean, I think for me, the the sad thing is still that, you know, basically white pop culture journalists journalism is about as homogenous. Uh, in fact, it's so homogenous and white, it makes the Tea Party look like the BET audience. And 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 you think about the the primacy of black culture in the mainstream nowadays, and that there aren't more, there isn't doesn't seem to be space for more black writers to to talk about this is still shocking to me. I still feel like I'm relatively singular. I mean, there aren't many people like me doing what I do, and then that seems to provoke a lot of anger. I mean, uh, there's a 
an astonishing amount of racism that gets directed towards me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Elvis Mitchell, is the host of a public radio show about film and pop culture called The Treatment. You you, may, you have produced this uh, series of documentaries called The Blacklist right. about um, African-American success in America, essentially. I look at it more like African-American life in the 21st century because it's not all – I mean, for me, the, the idea for that came from something my grandmother said to me when I was a kid. Any black person who lives to be 10 years old has a story to tell. But primarily, uh, the two reasons I want to do it because I want to reclaim – the word black is from being derogatory. That was the end. You know, whenever I tell people I was doing a documentary, blacklist, they go, so you're doing something about the communist witch hunts? No. About black people on a list. And there was one, as we were quoting publishers for the book, there's one publisher who said, this is so great, but I can't publish this as a blacklist. It's it's such an awful thing to call it. And, no, you is it really that hard to get the point of this? Just putting it out there that you, we will change the definition? And we've done that with the with the films. But the other reason I wanted to do this is because I remember sitting with Slash and um, just talking with him. I thought, it's one of these things, as you know, as you do, you meet people and you just store something up in your head and you think, at some point I'm going to get to use this. And I knew I wanted to have a film about black culture that opened with Slash. So you hear people go, why is Slash in this? Oh, because he's half <laughs> black. And he talks to, you know, people think I'm Jewish, people think I'm Spanish. And just for that, and for the, the first screening at Sundance, and again, I would fight for this. I mean, uh, people were saying in the film, well, we should start with Colin Powell. I said, no, no, everybody's waiting for Colin Powell to be in this. Trust me, we can save Colin Powell to the end. Nobody's going to walk out thinking they've missed a chance to see Colin Powell. I want a bunch of white people at, at 9,000 feet above sea level just think they're seeing a movie about black people and see Slash and go, what the? Oh, I mean, you could, it really is like that thing that extras never get right in the movies. That, oh. And that's when I knew we had something. There is this kind of segregation that exists um, just because it's the segregation of power that still is the way this country runs. One of the reasons to do the blacklist is to show that that's very slowly changing, but not so much. I mean, otherwise, I wouldn't still be pilloried for what I do. We, or having an African-American president wouldn't drive the governor of Arizona so crazy that she and the secretary of state want to petition to have the president's name kept off the ballot in the state of Arizona. I mean, that, that black success still drives a lot of this country so insane is kind of part of the joy of being black, frankly. <laughs> You kind of go, wow. So these people basically have no sense of irony whatsoever. <laughs> it's really just a wonderful thing to watch. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Elvis Mitchell, is the host of a public radio show about film and pop culture called The Treatment. Basically, the best uh, news story that I've ever read about a public radio personality, and I would love to read a story like this about like Terry Gross or something, was when you were arrested at the border with $12,000 in, in Cuban cigars and a cigar box in your car. Um, I was like, I, ser- I, I was this close to printing that out and putting it up on my it's wall. It's so funny because Terry Gross is in the car with me. She chose to jump out. <laughs> she chose to do a tuck and roll at 20 miles an hour. It's weird to talk about this because I made a joke about it that apparently caused some ire in some hallways of... I don't want to go any further than that, but I say, yeah, you know, I'm a 
big black guy with dreadlocks. Of course I'm going to get stopped. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, I probably shouldn't have said that. So, yeah, let's just say that my life has probably been a lot more colorful <laughs> than I chose for it to be. And that was a dumb thing to have done. But do you make a habit of driving around with $12,000 in a cigar First box? First of all, I wasn't driving. Okay. I was being taken across the border in a taxi. Secondly, I don't I don't know if you know what public radio is like. I don't have that kind of money anymore. <laughs> we have these things called pledge jars in which we ask for money. That's where what passes for my recompense comes from. It's why I have so many jobs so I can not have to do that anymore. So there. The job that you have had the longest now is is hosting the treatment. Um, where you have really, uh, really rich conversations with uh, people from all over culture, but especially film. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how that fits in with your career as a critic, where you have to be, um, you know, as part of your job, you have to be honestly critical of I've people's people, work. I've had people on that pan before, and there are also people that I've hand who won't do the show. Listen, I understand the way that works. That's okay. If you don't want to come talk to me because you feel like um, I've hurt you in some way and, and it's, been, it's been personally injurious to you, I completely understand that. It's one of the things that I always, I always do. Whenever somebody writes to me uh, to ask a question or even to attack, if it's a letter or phone call, it's always been my policy to respond to that just because I feel like I'm in this position publicly doing this. It's not a one-way street. It's one of the things you learn in newspapers. Any newspaper in the country, if you work there and you're not the editor of the paper, you answer your own phone calls. So when people call the New York Times or the Fort Worth Star-Telegram or the Detroit Free Press, I always answered and spoke to them. And I found as often as not that people want to be able to talk to you about it. I mean, they're just kind of venting because it's their reaction. I mean, well, how dare you like Pootie Tang? What's wrong with you? How dare you like, and I can name any number of films I've liked or disliked, and, and believe me, I would get calls or emails at the times. And I always thought, you've got to respond to this. So uh, as a consequence of that, there are people who won't do the show uh, because of what I said about them. And I'm sorry that they took it personally because I would Try, wasn't trying to hurt anybody, just trying to evaluate the work. As I'm doing less criticism now, I guess it's a little easier, but there are people who, go, who still remember things I've written. And um, the one thing I've, I've learned to understand uh, by virtue of having made three films and done other things is that I know you work as hard to make a bad movie as you do to make a good one. Nobody sets out to make something bad, but certainly it can happen, and we can't be dishonest about our feelings. Well, Elvis, I, I I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have you on the show. Oh, my God. I can't wait to hear the three-minute edited version of this conversation. <laughs> Elvis Mitchell is the host of The Treatment, which you can find online at kcrw.com. He also uh, curates the film series at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and uh, spends a not insignificant amount of his time on the juries of roughly 50% of the world's film festivals. <laughs> um, Elvis, thanks again. It was really great. It's to my pleasure. Show. And let me make this invitation to you to come do my show. It would be my honor to have you come. Anytime. It would be a tremendous honor to be on your show. Thanks for doing this, Jesse. Once a month or so, we like to check in with our friends, the McElroy Brothers, who host the podcast My Brother, My Brother, and Me, distributing advice of 
oh, let's be frank, varying quality on a wide variety of subjects. On our show, they help us solve pop cultural conundrums, or possibly conundra. Oh, God, I'm going to get emails. Uh, Travis, Justin Griffin, welcome back to Bullseye. Thank hey, thanks you. for having us. Here's my first bit of pop culture advice. Don't email Jesse about that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> He's out there flying solo. He's producing like nine shows at once. He's you got leave that like man 19 alone. shows at once. He can't remember all the words. Kind <laughs> of slack. Um, here's our first question. This comes from Steve, who wrote to us on Twitter. His question is, hey, my brother, my brother, and me, what's the perfect date movie? Can we say the hit film by the Wayans Brothers date movie? Yeah, date movie. I think is the per- date movie is all the date movies rolled in. I have not seen it myself. Oh, cra- I, th- well, I don't think anybody has. I hear it's a tour de force. <laughs> no, it's a tour de force. But I also I, don't know what a tour de force is. Yeah, right. Sure. You may be taking this too literally. I don't think that it has to be a movie called date movie. I think oh. that Steve no, is because of the movies called date movie. That is most certainly the best. <laughs> yeah. Can we drop a recommendation for for Jay Park? For one of the Jurassic Park, the hit trilogy? Well, okay, maybe just the first one. You don't want to open I'm up the sorry, what? I'm, ladies, I hate to contradict my brother here, but if a guy calls you and says, hello, would you like to come over to my house and watch Jurassic Park as a date? <laughs> you should bring a taser. Like, no question. <laughs> he is weird. But no sudden movements and he can't see you. <laughs> That's a great thing. His, his vision works on heat. Don't move. Can't see us if we don't move. Uh, Jurassic Park movies have everything. They have romance. They have action. They have velociraptors. Uh, they have uh, theological and scientific questions that you guys can discuss after you watch the movie. Like, hey, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Don't you think life finds a way? You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. Speaking of life finds a way, would you like to procreate? No. <laughs> Griffin, you know that girls can operate doorknobs, right? Timmy, <laughs> what is it? It's a velociraptor. It's inside. Here's a question from uh, James. This came into us on Twitter. He asks, is it okay to not tell my girlfriend about a TV show she might like if we already have a huge backlog of together shows uh here's a lesson i've learned from from a few years in marriage you should go and have a frank and open conversation with her about the tv shows that she watches because she enjoys them and the tv shows she watches because she loves you because you are going to be surprised at the link to that second list <laughs> if you get really open and honest you're gonna uncover some things and and maybe you don't want to go down that rabbit hole maybe it's a little too dark down there for you well, that's why in my living room, I have two TVs set up for just such an, an occasion. Oh, God, that's so weird. It's probably true, isn't it? It is true. One TV is for me. One TV is for her. Oh, that's no God. good. That's really? Like that. Yeah. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> you have a... You re- this is our big shi- moment to well, shine. Well, we share a couch. Like, we our have... MP- Oh, that's but you have the audio from the two shows, like you have audio from Phineas and Ferb, like mixing in with the audio from Game of Thrones, and then all of a sudden it's about two kids who like murder each other and have sex with their sisters. Griffin, are you suggesting that Travis is watching Game of Thrones while his girlfriend watches Phineas and Ferb? 
the popular television program for young children? It's it's actually probably better to assume that I'm watching Phineas and Ferb and she's watching Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. Travis right. consumes both pop culture and candy like a 10-year-old would. <laughs> Do you guys know what's convenient about this scenario that, that this gentleman has laid out of him not wanting to introduce a, a TV show to his girlfriend? Well, what you have to do, you have to buy the TV guy that's printed in the color that only men can see. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Ferrari. Is that a color? <laughs> Ferrari, Ferrari, yes. Ferrari, is that a color? It's Ferrari Sanskrit, and only we can read it. <laughs> so I don't think it's necessarily practical for him to install two televisions. Is there anything that he can actually do to manage this uh, sensitive boyfriend-girlfriend situation? Gotta get a man cave. <laughs> God, no. Don't do that. Anything. Call up your boys. It's Phineas and Ferb time. <laughs> your lady's so busy watching Game of Thrones, she doesn't understand the way you like to get down. <laughs> Sounds really good. So and far. I would definitely go to a bar called Bro's Man Cave. <laughs> Bro's Man Cave. 18 big screen TVs. All playing Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. Joffrey's got to stay home. <laughs> Kill them! Kill them all! Griffin, Justin, and Travis McElroy are the hosts of My Brother, My Brother, and Me. You can find their free podcast full of great advice, like the advice you just heard, on our website at MaximumFun.org or free in iTunes or whatever software you use to listen to your podcasts. Uh, McElroy's, thanks for joining us again on Bullseye. Thanks Thank for having us. Our pleasure. Oh, Sorry. Should have worked that out. After a break, Kevin Barnes, the man behind the band of Montreal, talks about going small in the studio. I don't really... Let the outside world in when I'm writing and recording. And big and bold on stage. In New York, that was the show that had the horse when it came out on the horse. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Bullseye is supported by listeners like you who donate at MaximumFun.org slash donate. And by Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10 on IFC. It's comedy so nice. That they banged it twice. Not exactly sure what that means, and you won't exactly be sure what's going on when you watch Comedy Bang Bang, which is a very strange and very amazing program. Uh, this Friday, not just Michael Sarah, but also the hilarious Paul F. Tompkins as the cake boss. Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, IFC. Hello there, my name's Graham Clark. And I'm Dave Shumka. And together we host a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself. This is a file that you download from the internet and then you listen to it in your pod. What's that about, you ask? Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost, bozo. (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and every week we bring a guest on the show. Sometimes they're Canadian, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're a ghost. It's like you're sitting in on a friendly uh, afternoon chat. Plus, we're Canadian, so uh, you get a tax break. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org. Huh? Ooh, spell. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like.
You could say that my guest Kevin Barnes is the front man of the band of Montreal, and that's true, especially when he's on stage leading a group of musicians and performers through a crazy stage show. The truth, though, is that he is the band of Montreal. He's the singer, songwriter, and records many of the records by himself. The group is an extension of his wildest ideas. Barnes started of Montreal in the mid-90s, and in 15 years it's gone from a psychedelic pop-rock act to a funk-influenced performance art extravaganza. Along the way, Barnes has released 11 LPs, created an African-American 40-something male-to-female-to-male transgendered alter ego named Georgie Fruit, and captured the hearts of a devoted and passionate international fan base. Here's spiteful intervention from Of Montreal's latest release, Paralytic Stops. It's sad that we need a tragedy to occur to gain a fresh perspective in our lives. Nothing happens for a reason. There's no point even pretending you know the sad truth as well as I. Oh God, the morning light, sun rays bring my paranoia. I can't function unless I'm the only one. Kevin Barnes, welcome to Bullseye. Yeah, man, no problem. Um, I I read a lot of interviews with you and a lot of um, articles about you and so forth in preparing for this, and I was struck at how little there was. Maybe just because there, you know, you have had you have played with personae. Uh, I think that's the plural of persona, so much in your music, how little there was about just kind of the the plain facts of you growing up. Were you interested in, in music and performing when you were a teenager? Yeah, I was. My, my parents really wanted me to be a part of the theater when I was in high school. I don't really know why, but I guess I was always singing, and so they knew that I had an appreciation for music, and and so they wanted me to be involved in these like extracurricular activities. But I just wasn't really into it. But I was into rock and roll, and I wanted to be in a band. So that I guess that was a thing. I was I thought musical theater was kind of lame, and what I really wanted to do was just be in a band with a bunch of punks. When you started doing music as of Montreal, was it was it originally just you? making recordings on uh, on a tape recording set at home or was it originally a performance project the, the idea being oh I'm gonna I'm gonna do shows and make money I didn't know anybody that, that played music when I was living at my parents house and I was still in high school where I was living at that time West Palm Beach Florida was really dead artistically I mean there was three bands maybe two or three bands that weren't just like bar bands you know like cover bands at my high school there was like 25 or 30 people that even knew who the pixies were so <clears throat> there was like really nobody 
doing what I wanted to do. So I, I sort of, out of necessity, just started doing things on my own and, and creating these albums by myself. I don't really let the outside world in when I'm writing and recording, mainly just because it adds so much to my life and I feel you know, so much more sane when I'm writing and I'm able to focus this kind of crazy energy that I have in my head into something positive. It's hard to sympathize with us that won't fight for themselves. I can't hold both our faces off the flames much longer. The child of our struggle is I was listening to uh, Dower Percentage, which is a track on the album, and I was thinking that it it almost sounds like a Philly soul song. I mean, if you if you were if your singing style sounded more like the OJ's, it could be a Gamble and Huff production. No, that's like it's such a mystery to me sometimes when I, when I look back on a record and be like, what? How did that happen? How did that song happen? Because early on, like even like the early days when the music was like so colorful and twee and just sweet, I was really depressed all the time. Like my whole life, I've been sort of depressed and struggling with it. But you never know. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Like how could this person that's making a song called Happy Yellow Bumblebee be depressed? You know, he must be the happiest person in the world. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Kevin Barnes is the frontman and founding member of the experimental pop group of Montreal. The band's recorded 11 studio albums, and their most recent is called Paralytic Stalks. They're known for their highly theatrical live performances and have just finished six months of live shows crisscrossing the U.S. and Europe. Is it hard for you to throw yourself into going out on stage I mean you seem like such a sort of quiet introverted guy to be the guy that you know rides on stage on a white horse <laughs> yeah well in my personal life I want to be as anonymous as possible I don't want to draw any attention to myself and I think that it's almost like that the whole project has this spirit that sort of propels itself forward and everybody involved throws themselves into it and nobody is self-conscious. It's something I think about a lot because, you know, you wake up every day and 
the days could be so similar or they could be extremely different. And I think I'm always trying to do things that make the, the days special and exceptional, you know, and make the days stand out from all the other days. And that's what we're trying to do a lot of times. And most of the time on tour, we're thinking about it in that way. Like we want people, because people are going to go to clubs that they've been to many times before. And a lot of times it can be, you know, it can be kind of a fun experience, but there's this thing, even if you really like a band a lot and you're seeing them and you're excited about it, so often, you know, you get to like the seventh or eighth song and you just, it becomes too static and, you know, it just gets a little bit boring and it's not that fulfilling. So what we're trying to do is kind of a, appeal to people's short attention spans, you know, just like we have, we, we have short attention spans. So we're trying to do something that has a lot of movement and never gets static and, and also, you know, sort of transform the venue and uh, create an exceptional evening for people and for ourselves. If you were going to share with our audience one remarkable experience um, that you know might break up the monotony of their lives that they might have experienced had they gone to enough Montreal show in the last four or five years, um, what might it be? Well, definitely the Skeletal Lamping Tour. That was our biggest production, and I never stopped running the whole time. I was like. I was like Madonna or something, or Alice Cooper, just running around from scene to scene. Because we, we set it up, and we had this rotating room that we could put different props in and then rotate it so the audience could see it and then have a, have this moment, sort of theatrical moment in that room and then turn the room around and change the scenery and uh, change the props and have new costumes. And In New York, that was the show that had the horse when it came out on the horse that was definitely probably the highlight do you travel with the horse or do you get a different do you just hire a horse in each city uh no that was actually just a one-time thing only time that i ever did it was in in new york at that one specific show but all the other things you know like we had we had this scene where i was dressed like a cardinal like a catholic cardinal and um, I had these nuns, these sort of sexy nuns at my feet, and then I'd rip off the cardinal outfit and, and just wear this these little gold underwear. <laughs> and I had this sort of Mayan sacrifice, and there's a moment where I came out in these giant roller skates. I mean, there's just all sorts of crazy things happening on that tour. And yeah, there's a moment where I was dressed like a centaur. <laughs> and my brother came out dressed like Pan. And we had this little dance that we did together, and... All sorts of crazy things. That was like by far the biggest production. We had like a Old West barroom bra with like fake bottles made out of sugar water, you know, so you could like smash them over people's heads. <laughs> that was that was the coolest thing that we ever did, I think.
Well, um, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was, uh, it, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, I had a good time. Kevin Barnes is the man behind the experimental pop band of Montreal. The latest album by the band is called Paralytic Stalks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Right now, the late-night talk show's in a bit of a golden age. There's Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert on Comedy Central, of course. Jimmy Fallon has done a brilliant job of capitalizing on his particular brand of charm, especially considering the boundaries of network television. Craig Ferguson actually talks to people like human beings, which is kind of amazing. Conan's taken his new cable gig as an opportunity to be, you know, more Conan-y than ever, which is great. And his show has the distinction of being the only late-night show that actually seems to consider whether the guests are, you know, funny, entertaining. But here's the truth. All of the people that I mentioned are brilliantly talented, and there's others besides. But there's only one real genius in late-night, and his name is David Letterman. From New York, the greatest city in the world, it's The Late Show with David Letterman. All those folks are funny. David Letterman is a transformative figure. He's the one who still does something once in a while that's amazing. Not just funny or clever or sharp, but genuinely marvelous. Dave's in his mid-60s. He usually seems pretty disinterested in the monologue. He's often borderline resentful of the top ten list. When a guest gets boring, he gets a little bored. But the fact is that Letterman's so good, he's still better than most when he's running at 80%. He's like a veteran pitcher. He hits the corners, he changes speeds, he holds a little something back. But when there's two strikes, he will blow you away. Because he's the best in the business, and that's what he does. Dave doesn't often leave the studio these days. Once in a while, they'll send a camera out and have him direct the action on the street. I particularly loved a segment called How Many Spider-Mans Fit in a Jamba Juice, which you should definitely watch on the internet. He'll still do something silly, even if it confuses the audience. Lately, he's been having a couple of faux morning anchors do plugs for the late show weekend. Sometimes a weird guy wanders onto the set to say something weird. Most often, though, Letterman's genius shows in the little moments, talking from the desk about a trip he took with his son, or interacting with an old friend like Regis Philbin, or with a genuine madman like Jungle Jack Hanna, or maybe a world champion grocery bagger or a child bird caller. It's in those little moments that he shows you something that you can't quite explain, something so good that it leaves you awestruck. Look, all these folks in Late Night are talented. Some of them are extremely talented. 
And probably some of their shows are cooler or hotter or more consistently amusing or incisive or whatever. But when they get home at 11 or 11.30, I think they watch Dave. Because Dave... That's my app shot. How you doing? Thank you. Hey, seriously, how many of you just came here to cool off, huh? Yeah. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Special thanks this week to our outgoing intern, Justin Morissette. Best of luck, Justin. Back in the frozen north. And a special welcome to our incoming intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the team. You can follow us on Twitter at Bullseye, and you can like us on Facebook. We send out lots of cool stuff all the time in those things. And if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.